0: Well, welcome again to Bible Center. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you so much for being here. What a killer crowd for a a weekend that's typically one of the lowest. I'm so glad to see you and also glad to see those who are joining us online uh, around the state and around the world. Thank you for being here. For those of you who are our members on vacation, we love you. Be safe. We look forward to seeing you again soon. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor here. And we're going to dive into God's word together today. It's a standalone sermon from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. So if you go ahead and open your Bibles, Titus chapter 1, we'll read in just a minute. Before we read, I want to tell you the story about the day I thought I was going to die. The day I thought I was going to die. It was about four months ago and I was hanging out with one of our elders, Dr. Brian Plants. Uh, He's a radiation oncologist here in town. Many of you or your family members have grown to love and respect him. He's cared for so many of you. Excellent doctor, excellent friend, and a very, very good elder. Uh, When you get to know him, you find out that he deeply, deeply loves this church, he loves this congregation. So I'm trying to hang out with our elders and hang out with our leaders and our pastors more, and so we went to lunch. And over lunch he told me about his farm up near Elkview, between Elkview and Clindin, and he asked me if I wanted to join him for the day. I said, sure. It sounds like a lot of fun. I've got an appointment at three o'clock, I told him, but it was about eleven thirty. As long as you can get me back for my appointment, we'll have a we'll have a good time. He says, sure, no problem. So we head up to his farm and on the way in on the gravel road he's pointing out the different neighbors who lives near his farm and you could just tell like he knows these people. He told me he said Matt at heart I am West Virginian. I love to ride four-wheelers. I love to get on tractors. I love to be in the woods. I like to hunt and all those things that go along with it. I'm West Virginian to the core. As we're pulling up to his farm beautiful views he takes me around, shows me some things in his barn. You've got a dozer and some mowers and four-wheelers. And, but I was noticing, and I appreciated his honesty, it would be a lot like me going into a barn or using a dozer. He was confessing how he didn't grow up learning to use uh, that type of machinery, and so he's broken a lot along the way. Uh, you know rip the axle out of a dozer I'm not quite sure how you do that but he was able to do that Uh, showed me some other pieces of equipment we had a really good time and then he said hey Matt let me show you around the property and all the roads that I've cut with the dozer I said well I'd love to Brian but it's been snowing and raining most of the winter do you really think that's a good idea And he said oh Matt no problem I actually dug a three-foot drainage ditch all the way down the main road that goes down the mountain so I'm sure we won't have any trouble Well, you know, then he asks the question that you hear sometimes right before you go to the emergency room, what's the worst that could happen, right? What's the worst that could happen? So we hop into his truck, and as I'm getting in his expedition, I'm thinking about that question, what's the worst that could happen? I'm also remembering some of the uh, machinery that I'm also thinking about the shoes I'm wearing. I'm wearing dress shoes. That day I had an appointment that required me to wear nice dress pants, and so we're getting into the truck, and we take off down the mountain. There's really only one way out of the barn, that's down the mountain. So as we're going down, we're picking up speed, and I look over and quickly realize that he's pumping the pedal, but it's not the gas, it's the brake, and we're not slowing down. And I turn and look at him, and I says, Brian, do you think we should be going this fast? And he looked back at me with this look of fear and asked, do you think it matters? Right? Like, (laughs) gravity's having her way with us. So we're going down the hill. It's not a cliff. I don't want to exaggerate, but there was a steep hollow for those of us from West Virginia. it's a holler, big steep holler here. And, and there's this three-foot drainage ditch that he dug over here. And even it looks scary. Thankfully, he chose the drainage ditch, and he steered the car into the ditch, and we skidded along the side of the mud. We're about a 45-degree angle. We don't know whether to laugh or cry. I wanted to cry, but I you know, didn't want to do that in front of Brian, so... I was just glad to be alive. I thought, good. I don't have to. Family didn't have to cash in on that policy today. And and so I crawl out of the car. Brian crawls out of the car. He has to come through my door. And I step into the mud, and instantly my shoes disappear in the mud. My nice dress shoes, by the way, disappear in the mud. Well, I get my cell phone out to call Jane and let her know to cancel my three o'clock. I probably wasn't going to be back in time. My cell phone doesn't work, and his cell phone doesn't work. So we have to, like, trounce all the way up the hill in this, you know, ankle-deep mud to the top of the hill. He calls two of his neighbors, one neighbor and then Mike, Mark Gunderson, who's a church member here. About a half hour later, they show up, and, and Brian is convinced he's going to take... By the way, he gave me permission to share this story, so don't worry. Brian gets on the tractor to go down the hill to pull his, his truck out, and I'm walking behind the tractor with his neighbor, Dave. And I had met Dave for five minutes and fell in love with Dave. Man, he's a hard-working dude. You could tell he'd work for a living. And so I started asking Dave, Dave, what do you do for a living? He said, Matt, I've been been an electrician, I've been a contractor, I've been a mechanic, just about anything to pay the bills. I've been everything but a brain surgeon. And I just thought I'd be funny. And I pointed up at Brian, and I said, well, there's your brain surgeon right there. And he looked at me, and he stopped, and he said, idiot. (laughs) He said... He saves everybody's life, but he needs me to save his farm. That's what he told me. <laughs> that, that day, hanging out with Brian, actually turned out to be a wonderful day. And it occurred to me that day that even the best leaders have quirks. Even the best leaders have things in their life that they're good at and other things that they're not good at. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that for a while, about what are the qualifications for a leader? What does God expect? And if it's not perfection, what does the Lord require of our church leaders? If you've been in church for any length of time, I really believe you need this message. I needed this message this week studying. I don't know that I've studied for a message as hard or more diligently as I have for this message in quite a while. I needed this message. Some of you have been hurt by church leaders. Some church leader who wasn't qualified to be in that position, they hurt you deeply, and you carry those scars. And I'm praying this morning would be a healing morning for you. Some of you have, have maybe remember, you have memories, fond memories of leaders that, in your, your opinion, were perfect church leaders. And as you imagine them and their perfection, you compare them to some of us who are trying to lead today, and, and you say, man, they were perfect. One of my good friends recently told me, he says, Matt, anytime people romanticize the past, just remember the Volkswagen Beetle, right? Everybody thought that was the perfect car, but if you think about it, it was really just a piece of junk, right? Just remember the Volkswagen Beetle. Now, thankfully, all of us have had leaders that we deeply love and respect, but maybe bitterness has settled into your heart because that leader is no longer in your life. Or maybe you've lost your joy, you've lost your peace. One of my mentors told me recently, this past week on the phone, he said, Matt, the older I get, the more critical I get. And he says, whether it be going to the dentist office or going to the mechanic or going to the grocery store, the older I get, the more incompetence I see in the world. And he says, it's just part of life. And he said, so pray for me that I don't lose my joy and I lose my grace for other people. So I believe this message will be a help to all of us. If you're new to the church, if you're new to Bible Center or just to the church in general, I think this message will also help you uh, because I want to give you a word of encouragement at the very beginning. We will fail you. We will disappoint you at some time in the future. It's kind of like when you get on an airplane and they're talking about the air following falling from the ceiling. No one really listens. People are like, yeah, right, like that's not going to happen. But when it happens, you're trying to remember the instructions. So I trust that this morning, this message will help you through those time of turbulence, that we can be a family. We can be a family together and pursue biblical leadership as God has laid out in his word. Titus chapter 1, will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible? Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in the common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as, as has been taught so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated here's our main point today in your notes if you've got your outline on the back of the bulletin or on the app the main point is simply this leaders can't be flawless but they can be faithful leaders can't be flawless but they can be faithful if you have your phone or a pen I would encourage you to take notes definitely take mental notes we're gonna cover a lot of ground but I would invite you to take what we discussed this morning and study it for yourself And don't take my word for it, but to study the scriptures with the Holy Spirit on your own. Why do we say leaders can't be flawless? Well the answer is simple, there is no perfect leader anywhere in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no way that we could say in order to be a blameless or faithful person that you have had to have been perfect all of your life. It's not possible. We can say that God is faithful in that way because he's God, but faithful, faithfulness for us can never be flawlessness. So what then does faithful mean? The idea of faithful is all throughout the book of Titus. There's just three chapters, but there's six mentions of the word faith or faithfulness. And he refers to people who hold to the faith, both in their belief system and in the way they live their life. Their lives are becoming, they describe, they picture, they illustrate the faith of Christianity. Leaders can't be flawless, but they can be faithful. In your notes, I've asked a couple questions. The first question is, who are our church leaders? Who are our church leaders? Well, number one, our point leaders are called elders or pastors. Elders or pastors? Notice with me, verse 5. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town in Crete. So where is Crete? Here's a map. Crete is just off the southern coast of of Greece, one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. Has anybody been to Crete? Oh, okay, Beth, a number of you have been to Crete. I hear it's beautiful. I saw a picture. Uh, I've got to show you this picture of one of the bays just so it just looks like a great place to vacation, like in February, right there. That's the place to go. It looks like a beautiful place. Well, Paul knew not only was it a beautiful spot, but he knew it was a place that would be strategic for the gospel. The ports around Crete were able to go to North Africa and, and uh, uh, Israel and, and Europe. You could reach most of the known world from the hub of Crete. So Paul took young Timothy to this little island. It's not very big, about 150 miles long, which is about the distance from here to Morgantown. It's about 35 miles wide, but that particular island had a reputation for being, really being a place of debauchery. It made Las Vegas look like a Sunday school class. The Grecians would joke, and they had a name for for people from the island of Crete. They said they were lazy, they were immoral, they were supposedly all liars so Paul and Titus knew that was the place to go to preach the gospel when the light when the night is the darkest the light can shine the brightest and there were people all over the island that came to faith in Christ well Paul has to go on with the rest of his missionary journey so he leaves Titus behind to establish churches you have got all these new baby Christians that have to be gathered together in churches and his instruction to Titus was simple He said, Titus, gather the churches together and ordain or appoint elders, leaders in every church. He knew that Titus couldn't be the single spiritual leader in an island 150 miles long, but he could ordain in all the cities these leaders who could then lead the church. So Titus could lead the leaders and the leaders could lead the church. The idea of elder and pastor are used interchangeably in the Bible. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. To the elders among you, Peter says, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Leave that up on the screen for a minute. If you see elders and shepherds and watching over them, those three words come from the same words as elders, pastors, and bishops. The idea of shepherds is the same Greek word for pastors. Watching over them is the word episkopos. When we get our word episcopalian. it means bishop or overseer. So there are some places in the Bible where I would be called a bishop. Pastor John would be called a bishop. You have my permission the rest of the day to call him Bishop John. That would actually make my day. Bishop John. Well, we also could be called elders. It's different names for the same person. Here at Bible Center, we're starting to call some of our lay elders pastors. And I'll refer to them sometime when we take communion. I remember the first time I was standing beside Matt Walker, one of our elders, And I really hadn't taught on this, but it was just in the back of my mind, and it just came out. I said, here's one of our pastors, Pastor Matt Walker. And everybody in communion just, like, looked over at him, like, he's not a pastor. He's an elder. Well, actually, in the Bible, they're the same thing. Some are paid. Some are unpaid. And we're all called to live faithful lives. We're not perfect, but we're growing in an exemplary way by the grace of God. So our elders, what do they do? What do pastors do? First of all, they manage the church. Notice verse 5 and verse 7. In verse 5, Paul tells Titus to put things in order. In verse 7, he says, elders, manage or oversee the church. God owns the church, but we manage the church. Do management principles, do leadership principles have any place in the church? Absolutely they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, certainly, we don't want to let management and leadership and organizational structure be more important than digging deeply in the Word of God. And we as your elders and pastors, we we constantly feel that. And the Lord constantly draws us back. We want to be a church that's Bible-centered. But let's also not be a church that says, well, management and leadership have no place in the church. That's, That's really from the teachings of Plato, Uh, Plato, a couple thousand years ago or more, taught that the spiritual world is good, but the physical world is bad. And having grown up here in West Virginia, the teachings of Plato have an effect on us more than what we think. If you grew up in a really strict, fundamentalist church, the teachings of Plato may have affected you more than you realize I hear that sometimes. Well, the physical world is just going to burn up. It's all bad. But the spiritual world is good. Well, actually, God says in Psalm 24 and verse 1 that the whole earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the Lord. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When Jesus was resurrected, Jesus didn't leave his old rotting body in the grave. But when Jesus rose, he rose with a physical new body. There was not one particle left from his old physical body. Because of the resurrection, we can learn that the physical world matters to God. One day God's going to create all things new. We're going to live in a physical world forever. We're not just going to float on clouds like you see on the toilet paper commercials. We're going to live in a new body, a new heaven, and a new earth. So leadership principles matter. Structure matters. Management matters. I look forward to introducing you to our elders. If you're a member, I hope you'll carve out time to be at the member meeting on June 10th. It's our annual member meeting, annual family meeting. But even if you're not a member and you call Bible Center Church your home, join us anyway and get to know the leaders Of your church what do elders do they manage but they also teach the church they teach the church in verse 9 Paul tells Titus that elders and pastors must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so they can encourage others by sound doctrine elders and pastors are called to teach the church If you cut an elder, which I'm not recommending, but if you cut an elder, they should bleed Bible. Pastors and elders, we're called to saturate ourselves with God's word and to share God's word so the church can be built up in the most holy faith. And different elders and pastors do this in different ways. We have some elders who are great in a big classroom setting. We have a couple elders that are actually going to be part of sermons throughout the next coming year. They love and they do a great job in a large group setting. Some of our elders do best in more of a small group setting. Man, they go deep in God's word with a group of 10 or 12, 15 people. Some of our elders prefer more one-on-one mentorship. And you'll see them around town sometimes with an open Bible. Just over lunch sharing God's word with another fellow Christian. But no matter what it looks like, elders are taught to teach God's word. This is the reason we have core classes at Bible Center. A couple weeks ago on a Friday night, we had our first Bible Center core class, How to Study Your Bible. Uh, Again, that was a couple weeks ago. You can go on our uh, Facebook page or my Facebook page and see the YouTube link uh, to that night. Two or three hours of solid Bible teaching. Pastor Mike did a phenomenal job. And if you weren't able to attend the class, be sure to check out the link. But over the next few years, we want a robust group of people going deeply in the word of God elders do one more thing they protect the church verse 9 the end of verse 9 he uses very strong words and he tells them to rebuke those who teach falsely publicly expose the word is, is sharp it means to publicly reprimand the false teachers now who were the false teachers in Crete We won't have time to turn there or look there, but this week, as you study this passage on your own, let me invite you to study verses 10 through 14, really the whole book. In verses 10 through 14, which is the next section, we're gonna find that the false teachers were actually the legalists who were coming in and adding to God's word. And they were trying to teach, verse 14 says, they were teaching the traditions of men as if they were the word of God. And so Paul is very, very clear. He says, if somebody comes among you and they try to be more spiritual than Jesus and they try to add truth to the Bible that is not in the word of God, you are to confront them lovingly, of course. And we're trying to challenge them and and help them. But if they continue to persist, they persist in teaching wrongly. He says, rebuke them sharply. Do not let people add to the word of God. So we elders are called to protect the church from legalism and other forms of false teaching, so who are our church leaders, elders and pastors? They're also deacons. Number two, they're deacons. Our lead servants of the church are called deacons. We'll not take a lot of time to look at the deacons today. Uh, The deacons aren't in Titus chapter 1, they're more in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy this fall, uh, starting I think in August, so you're going to want to be here uh, for that August and September right on through to the holidays, verse by verse. We're going to leave no stone unturned and look at what deacons do. But I'll just briefly mention several things about deacons. First of all, they're known for having a servant's heart. When we're all running from the mess, deacons run to the mess. Deacons are usually the people who, who like getting their hands dirty. Their qualifications are almost the same as the elders, but elders, elders certainly have a servant's heart and they want to serve. But if you give an elder a choice between getting his hands dirty or teaching, an elder is going to choose teaching every time. A deacon wants to serve and often behind the scenes or be a, a lead servant over a group of people they have a servant's heart. They also lead the church to meet physical needs. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 again we see the word serve is used. They are lead servants. I'll put a little caveat here. This doesn't mean that deacons aren't spiritual people. All right, can I throw that out there? Deacons are spiritual people who meet physical needs of spiritual people. Deacons are spiritual people who meet physical needs of spiritual people and the deacons do don't do all the work of the ministry but they lead others to do the work of the ministry which is why often our deacons lead teams and groups of other people who do the work of the ministry here's one illustration that we'll look at in a little more detail but number three deacons are also shock absorbers deacons are shock absorbers and by that I simply mean that they, they take away some of the physical demands and pressure of the church so the pastors and elders, we can devote our time to praying with people, studying the scriptures, and teaching the scriptures to people. In Acts chapter 6, the early church had a number of widows in the church. In that particular culture, because of uh, warfare and other reasons, there were a lot of widows and so in that church they were being so excited about God's word through the apostles and people were learning new things about God's word that they accidentally neglected the widows. So in Acts chapter 6, the Holy Spirit told the apostles, choose out from among you, choose, choose seven individuals who can go into the church, and they, from the church, and they can serve the widows so that the pastors can spend their time teaching God's word and praying with God's people. Deacons act like shock absorbers. Here at Bible Center our deacons care for our facilities, they assist with benevolence, they serve with their wives, they serve widows, they count offerings, they prepare communion elements and baptism and they advise, advise elders on the matters of finance. Elders ultimately, elders and pastors oversee the church, but, but it's good for us not to spend 15 hours in our elders meetings, looking at spreadsheets. I would not enjoy that at all. But I love it when they can advise us and tell us what they recommend. As we seek to be more biblical or or as we seek to just grow in our understanding of the scriptures and we seek to to spread our influence, we want to have deacons of children's ministry in the future. We're going to have deacons of security. We already technically do, even though we don't call them that. Deacons of Awana and deacons of communication and maybe even deacons of social media and deacons of hospitality and deacons of finance and maybe even deacons of coffee. I don't know. But the Bible never says deacons can only do this. The Bible just says, deacons, you make sure the elders and pastors have time to study the word and pray with people. You take a load off. Be a shock absorber for the ministry. I'd love to introduce you to all of our deacons. Again, I think this is the third time you've been invited. So consider yourself invited to June 10th to our annual family meeting where you can meet our deacons, our current and our new deacons. What are the qualifications for these people? As we begin to wrap it up, what are the qualifications for deacons and elders? Well, I read this this week, uh, the qualification of the perfect church leader... I enjoyed this. I hope you do too. The perfect church leader, it was about senior pastors, but I I changed it just since I'm the one giving it. The perfect church leader preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. They condemn sin, but they never step on anybody's toes. They work from six in the morning till 10 at night, seven days a week, but they're always rested and refreshed. The perfect church leader is 37 years old with 40 years of ministry experience. They're tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and they're very good looking. They have a burning desire to work with youth and spend all of their time with senior saints. They smile all the time while keeping a straight face, and they have a serious, very serious sense of humor. They make 15 house calls on Christians a day. They evangelize unbelievers, and they're always in their office when you need them the perfect church leader what are the qualifications thankfully that's not it but it says in this passage in verses 6 and 7 that we're to be blameless which is a high calling the idea of blameless again can't meet perfection leaders can't be flawless but they can be faithful the word blameless means above reproach no legitimate accusation can be brought against this person to bring disrepute on the gospel or the church Elders and pastors and deacons are to be above public scandal. Note several things as we read through the qualifications. Notice how much character is emphasized over competency. There's a little competency mentioned in the areas of serving and teaching, but character is emphasized more. I did a coaching call, coaching program this past week, and, and there was a, a gentleman on the coaching program saying, giving us all these instructions on who you need to have in church leadership. And, and I'm sure if I would have listened to the whole like, hour, he would have got to character. But he just emphasized how you need to have certain people with these gifts and competencies. And I thought, man, you should emphasize character first. That's what God emphasizes first, is character. Character. These qualifications are things that all Christians should have, so when I read through them, it's something that God invites you to have and me to have, whether we be church leaders currently or not. All these descriptions are in the present tense. It's important to make that distinction. For instance, in a moment we're going to read about how deacons and elders aren't to be quick, have be quick-tempered. That doesn't mean that 20 years ago they weren't quick-tempered, It just means that God has grown them to a place that presently that is not part of their character. So what are the qualifications? If you're taking notes, you can see them. I've listed there. Number one, gospel-centered spiritual life. Church leaders have a gospel-centered spiritual life. It says that they're holy, they're devout, they're focused on God. The greatest gift I can give you as a senior pastor for the decades to come, is not leadership and it's not preaching. I have a long way to go in both of those areas. But the greatest gift I can give you is my holiness. Pray for me in that way. I want to know and be devoted to God. This past week, I, I, I'm planning to say this, but this past week I read a, uh, an interview with a Japanese pastor. And the Japanese pastor said that when he meets a Buddhist monk, he thinks Holy. But when he meets an American pastor, he thinks entrepreneur. And I thought, dear God, help me to be a holy, more devout, holy man. There's a lot of management in a church this size. There's a lot of leadership in a church this size. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a holy man. And I want holiness for all of our leaders and holiness for you. Pray with us about that, that God would deepen us in our devotion to Jesus Number two, gospel-centered private life. That means in private, we're the same person we are in public. And he says that we're, we're not quick-tempered. We're not given to drunkenness. Literally, the word there is he does not sit too long over the wine. We're not pursuing dishonest gain. We're not greedy. We're not just doing this because it's a job, because we get a paycheck, or an elder just for the power, even if they don't get a paycheck. We're, to be, we're called to love what is good and to be self-controlled and disciplined, to prioritize our lives in such a way that we're not, we're not enslaved by anything. Whether it be TV or alcohol or prescription drugs or sex or golf or fishing or food, nothing enslaves us. By the grace of God, our private lives are called to be just as spiritual as our public lives. Number three, that brings us to the gospel-centered public life. We're not to be overbearing, not to be self-willed, not to be arrogant, not to be obstinate, not violent. That's a big one here in West Virginia. You know, some of us, you know, we, we grew up settling our differences with a fist fight, right? Like, hey, I, gr- I disagree with Jeff. Me and Jeff are going to go out back and we're going to settle this. That's kind of what we did, Right. But that's not, well, actually, I didn't. I wasn't that cool or tough, but that's what some people do. He says, don't be violent. That's not just with your fists, but it's also with your words. We must be hospitable, lover of strangers, kind, upright, law-abiding, observant of what is right. We strive to be right with our fellow brothers and sisters. Does this mean that if one of our elders or pastors get a speeding ticket that we're no longer qualified at Bible Center, Boy, I, sh- I sure hope not. Let me just clear the air and get that out there. I've not had one since I've been back in West Virginia, and, and I've been going to those cookouts with the police department just to make sure that they know my face and remember all the burgers. Uh, but getting a speeding ticket probably doesn't disqualify you, but if I was known as the pastor who goes 100 mile an hour everywhere I go and I'm just constantly every day getting t- that could be a problem, right? So we're just to evaluate our characters in the present tense, the last one in your notes before we pray is gospel-centered family—not only a, a public life and pro, but a gospel-centered family life. And he says we're to be the the husband of one wife, or in the NIV, faithful to our wives. What does this mean? Well, there's several different views on this, and I'll give you the the common views. One view is that it means that you can't be single and be a church leader. There are some who actually believe that. I've got a friend in Shelby, North Carolina, who believes that. And, And the pros to that, they say, those who advocate for this, say that there are some difficult situations that are somewhat alleviated if you have a spouse, a counseling situation and others. Those of us who don't adhere to that view, we say, well, those situations occur whether you're married or not. And you're required to always be thinking of accountability whether your wife is with you or not. Jesus was single. Paul was most likely single. And to take a strict view on verse 6 and say that one cannot be single, we must then also say he has to have multiple children because verse 6 says children, plural, and they're believing children. So that's one view to which I, I don't, don't ascribe. Number two, some say that they can't be a polygamist. Scriptures clearly teach against polygamy. And the pros to this particular view about that phrase being the husband of one wife or faithful to his wife, uh, the idea of polygamy, again, certainly fits with the greater scriptures. God wants a man to have one wife, not two at a time, not three at a time. When I was in seminary, there were a group of African pastors who really helped me see the church through different lenses. And this is an issue for them. Dealing with what do you do with someone who comes to faith in Jesus after they already have multiple wives? And and so this could be something Paul was talking about, but that most scholars don't believe that's the case because polygamy was outlawed in the Roman Empire in the first century. And so they don't believe that's what he was referring to. Number three, this is one I never knew till this week. Some say this idea of being faithful to your wife means that you have never been intimate with any other woman ever, any other woman ever prior to meeting your wife. The pros to that is it recognizes God's view of of intimacy and the scars that can be left behind with with someone to whom you don't marry. So it's certainly a, a, a view, some take. The con beside that view is that it's a a beautiful thing, again, when a man can say his wife is the only woman with whom he's been married, but there's not too many men like that. Even if it was uh, something that someone would argue, it would seem to weaken forgiveness and weaken the grace of God and weaken the healing that can come from somebody who has made mistakes in their past. And I've noticed at times there are men who... Leaders who will say that they are the husband of one wife but at the same time they struggled with pornography and unbridled lust and Jesus has much to say about that. A fourth view that's common in our area or has been in the past is that is you can never be divorced and be a church leader. The pro behind this view recognizes the sanctity of marriage, that divorce was not part of God's plan, and that it breaks God's heart. I've never met anybody who walked through the horrible days of a divorce and said, that's the way God wanted it to be. Or when I stood at the marriage altar, that's the way I wanted it to be. No one says that. And so we can be all on the same page that this isn't part of, of God's design. And, and another pro to taking this position and drawing this line prevents us as church leaders from having to have hard conversations and asking questions like, have you healed from the divorce? Has your spouse, ex-spouse healed from the divorce? What about the children? How are they? There's a lot of hard conversations. So sometimes it's easier to draw that line and make that policy but the cons of this particular view says that is that divorce is never mentioned anywhere in 1st Timothy chapter 3 Paul uses very very clear language and so most scholars believe had Paul wanted to use the word divorce he would have clearly said church leaders can't be divorced but he doesn't use that word it's built on a misapplication of the Bible some suggest I've talked to friends who hold this position and they hold it vehemently And I respect their opinion. By the way, we can agree to disagree on issues that aren't gospel related. But one of the issues that's often brought up is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. You, you want to make a note of that. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Jesus said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Those are really, really hard words. And so I've heard good leaders usually men say well see that right there disqualifies you from being a church leader because of those strong words about adultery if anybody ever uses those that argument with you humbly please don't be arrogant but humbly encourage them to read five verses pr- prior to that Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 says you have heard that it was said i tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed Excuse me. You've heard it said. I tell you that adultery is sin. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you use Matthew five as a requirement against church leadership, none of us are require, None of us meet the qualifications because every man in this room, every woman in this room, has thought things in their heart that they know don't please the Lord. Even if you've never acted on it. And so Matthew 5 was given for a different reason. Matthew 5, Jesus was preaching to a group of religious people, and they didn't think they were lost. And if you read Matthew 5 through 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through like every imaginable sin. And and he the point of it is that when you walk away from the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to be able to say, I am messed up. I need a Savior. But 1 Timothy 3 was written about church qualifications. So we derive qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, not from Matthew 5. This particular position, a con to the divorce argument, ignores, some would suggest, biblical grounds for divorce, like adultery or abandonment or abuse. It can weaken the emphasis of someone being a new creature in Christ. Does God not make us new creatures? It can weaken the power of repentance and restoration, even for folks who've pursued divorce in their past. Dr. John MacArthur isn't Jesus, but he's written a lot of really good things. And I love what MacArthur writes on this subject in his commentary. He's a pastor not far from LA he says the church has responsibility to uphold the biblical ideal of marriage especially as exemplified by its leadership in cases where there has been divorce in a person's past the church has an obligation to restrict for a period of time that person's involvement in leadership until it can be proven that the present marriage exemplifies Christ's relationship to the church the phrase the husband of one wife MacArthur writes does not mean that a person cannot have had a divorce in his past since none of the other qualifications listed refer to specific acts in the past prior to salvation or even subsequent to salvation but rather to qualities which currently characterize a man's life It is especially important in cases where there has been divorce in a person's past that there be a period of careful observation to see that the present marriage is characterized by devotion and sacrificial love. The fifth argument and the fifth position and last that we'll look at today is that Paul simply referred to being a one-woman man. A one-woman man those who espouse this view believes that it's the most literal way to read 1 Timothy 3. For in the Greek, the Greek is literally meos, gunikos, and "r," which means one woman, man, word for word, no wondering eyes. Just the eyes on his wife or the future wife that God may give him faithful to the present tense in other words all the other qualifications were in the present tense so those who espouse this view say we've got to look at this view in the present tense and not make this the only one that we see in the past they believe it's faithful to the context scholars will tell us that in Crete it was common for men to have three women at once To have a wife for children, a servant girl for pleasure, and a temple prostitute for worship. And so when Paul's writing this to Titus, he is saying, no, 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 no. You're to be a one-woman man, not a three-woman man. And in many ways, it actually raises the bar. It's not been this way at Bible Center, but churches that hold the divorce position will sometimes get to the place that that's the only requirement for leadership. Have you been divorced? Well, no. Well, then fine. You can be a leader. But the danger with that is that it discounts other questions like like, do you treat women with respect? Are you respectful to your sisters in Christ? Do you avoid pornography? Do you avoid flirting with other women in the congregation? Do you date your wife if you're married? Do you organize your interactions with female co-workers in such a way that is respectful and honorable without putting anyone in in a difficult situation? And lastly. This particular view, those who hold to this view believe it keeps us from adding to God's word, which, by the way, in context, were the false teachers that Paul warned Timothy about, or Titus about in verses 10 through 14. For the last 75 years, Bible Center Church has held culturally to number four. That's never been written in a constitution. To my knowledge, it's never been written in a policy. But culturally, that has been our position. This past Thursday night, after two years of discussion with me and 10 years of intermittent discussions among our elders, we voted because you have nominated some amazing leaders who in decades past have divorced in their past. And this past Thursday, our elders voted unanimously to install them based upon your nominations in various positions in church leadership I would invite you not to receive this discussion because I said so but our pastors have put together a Bible study and it's out on the info desk I had Jane print off like two or three hundred so there's plenty for everybody uh, if not we can print more you can pick that up and study it for yourself we've been asked a series of questions questions like Won't this make us a stumbling block in our community? And our response to that is actually we believe it's more of a stumbling block for us to add to God's word. Our elders can tell you stories over the years of different people who've been hurt deeply, not on purpose, but through the ministry of churches like ours. And we do not want to make that mistake in the future. I've been asked, is this the beginning of a slippery slope for us to go down in a direction that's not biblical. And my answer to that is it's only a slippery slope if we get away from the Word of God. But if we can stay in the Word and in community and ask each other hard questions, we can actually be a more spiritual people because of it. I've been asked, should we do this right now in the middle of a financial campaign? And my response to that is lovingly, I don't make any decisions based upon money our decision is based upon what the Word of God says and I would invite you to join me in that Mike John one of our elders shot a video with me this week it's really really short And before we close I would invite you to see this video with me
1: hi I'm here with Mike John the chairman of our elders uh, Mike thanks for thanks for coming in today I wanted to ask how long have you been a Bible Center
2: my wife Denise and I have been here for over 25 years. I'm, I'm able to recall how long we've been here because our son is 25 years old and, and it was the beginning of our family that brought us here. And so his age reminds me of how long we've been together with Bible Center. So how, many, how long have you been an elder and how many
1: times have you been an elder?
2: I've, I've been an elder through two cycles. And as far as how long I've been an elder, my first time as an elder goes back to Uh, when Pastor Sean was here. Uh, I was an elder just at the end of his time at Bible Center and then was in place as an elder through the transition and through the search process that uh, led to Pastor Mounts coming here. And then now I'm back on the elder board with you in place and uh, so proud to serve and proud to be a part of this.
1: Amen, me too, me too. So I wanted to ask a little bit about the journey of qualifications for an elder and a deacon. I've been talking about it in this sermon, and I'll finish in a moment uh, talking more about it from 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. But can you tell us a little bit about how long have we been on this this journey, and what's the discussion been like over the years?
2: Well, my experience, of course, with the elders goes back to Pastor Thornton, and I I can't speak to what might have been discussed prior to that, but I'm uh, very familiar with the processes that we've gone through each year when we nominate individuals to serve on the various boards and from the beginning from my first year as an elder there was considerable discussion and consideration given to individuals that had some divorce in their past so the the topic or the concept of considering someone that has had divorce in their past is something that's been talked about through the times that I've been on the elder board all the way back to when Pastor Sean was here.
1: And that's been over 10 years ago.
2: Well over 10 years ago.
1: Even all the way back when I was praying about coming on as senior pastor, we started having these discussions with the search committee and even with our, our elders about how I feel about different positions. And I was upfront about how I felt on this particular position. But we've, we've, this discussion has come up several times over the last two years that I've been senior pastor. How would you describe those conversations as they as they come up among our elder board?
2: First, I would use the word thoughtful, and, and I appreciate the word cautious also in in how it's been considered. As as you've seen, it's it's a deliberate group of men in that uh, they're very serious about this church. They're very serious about God's word, and and as we've thought about this topic, prayed about this topic, it's I think it's become clear to us that it's not a a a circumstance or a situation that you you find one solution for everyone it's it's something that needs to be thought about and prayed about on a case-by-case basis and so that that would be the the first way that i would describe it is that it was been considered on a case-by-case basis
1: that's really good and one of the things that has impressed me the most and i feel this every month when i go into our elder meetings or as i just hang hang out and do life with you brothers and that is the importance of biblical allegiance. We want the Bible truly to be Bible-centered and Jesus-focused. And uh, I'm thankful for your impact on that group and on my life.
2: Oh, thank you for the opportunity to be here and be a part of this wonderful church. And thank you for what you do here. Thanks,
0: Mike. Let me invite you to stand where you are. We're going to stand and just close the service in prayer get our second ser- third service in here in just a moment. As we pray, let me let you know I'm gonna be here at the front until the next service begins or shortly before it. I'll be around this week. We love you. We'd love to talk with you. Pick up the Bible study in the back and let's move forward together being Bible-centered and Jesus-focused. May God work that in all of our hearts. Please pray with me before we're dismissed. Father, we thank you for your grace that you have showed to men and women throughout history. God, I thank you for Abraham, and though he lied, you used him to make a great nation. Think of Elijah, and though Elijah was suicidal, he became one of the greatest prophets. We think of Job, and though he was bankrupt, he became the comforter to people today. We thank you for Moses, and though he had a speech impediment and threw temper tantrums, and though he murdered a man, you used him and led him to be one of the greatest leaders of all time. We think of Gideon, and though he was a coward, you made him into a great military warrior. We think of Rahab, and though she was a prostitute, you put her in the lineage of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the Samaritan woman at the well, that though she was divorced multiple times, she became the greatest missionary in her city. We think of Noah, who was a drunk, who you listed in the hall of faith, and, and Jacob, though he was a cheater, he met you, and, and David, though he committed adultery, God, you, you forgave him and he repented, and you used him greatly to write the book that we're going to spend our summer studying. God, we thank you for Jonah, that though he ran from you, he became the greatest revival preacher of all time. That Peter, though he denied you three times, that you used him to found the church. And and Martha, that though she was a warrior, she became your right-hand woman. And Zacchaeus, though he was money-hungry, continue his story leads children to Jesus today. We thank you for the disciples that though they fell asleep, you gave them more chances. And they started a great movement that led to our church being started 75 years ago. And we thank you for Paul, that though he was a terrorist, you made him into a great leader who never got over the grace that you showed him. Help us to be a people who never get over the grace that you show us. Bless these folks as we enjoy a holiday. May we be people of the book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Have a great day.